Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. If Keir Starmer was a material, he'd be drip-dry bry nylon from 1974. It was only you from the coverage I saw that made the wonderful connection between sword-bearer Penny Mordaunt (laughs) and the fact that she was once a knife-thrower's assistant. The world body for rowing have, in a way, encouraged this because their policy is to allow males into the female category. However good they get, they will never be as good as the trans women who can steal their place in a boat. One. We have liftoff. Welcome to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. So the Tories lost 1,060 seats, Alison, with Labour overtaking the Conservatives to become the largest party of local government. Rishi Sunak's team attracted just 26% of the popular vote across English councils that voted last Thursday, down from 28% when Theresa May crashed and burned in 2019. Keir Starmer's Labour chalked up 35%, up from 28% under Jeremy Corbyn. Yet on these vote shares, Labour wouldn't win a majority in a general election expected towards the end of 2024. And while the Tories did badly, Sunak seems to have done enough to have fended off, for now, backbench bickering about another change at the top. What's clear, Alison, is that while you predicted 1,300 Tory losses <laughs> on successive Planet Normal podcasts, I predicted 1,000. <laughs> and the 1,060-seat drop-off was, I'm afraid, a lot nearer my total than yours. So it's you that's buying the drinks for once. <laughs> I'll see you in the King's Arms. But before we discuss these results, what we can agree on, Alison, is that the coronation of Charles III, a mix of pageantry, religion, history and nostalgia, was at the same time spectacular, awe-inspiring and ever so slightly bonkers. (laughs) And in that sense, I think we both feel it did indeed encapsulate the remarkable, complex and above all unique character of Blighty, this dear old country of ours. You're sounding a little bit hoarse, Halligan. Is that all singing <laughs> Land of Hope and Glory? I'm the Barry White of the Telegraph. <laughs> I, I'm here in my bathrobe. <laughs> a Welsh friend did text me at the height of the coronation ceremony and said that at their age, Charles and Camilla wearing the ermine capes looked like they were in bed jackets, which was entirely <laughs> true. I mean, there were so many eccentric aspects to it. I mean, most of us haven't seen a coronation. In fact, I think only 8% of the population had ever witnessed a coronation. But there was a huge amount to enjoy, wasn't there? I mean, even if you're completely anti-monarchy, it was an absolute feast of music in the Abbey. And when Charles III came in 
and the combined choirs conducted by Andrew Nessinger burst into Hubert Parry's I Was Glad. I mean, you know, we should be really proud. This country produces absolutely astonishing singers and musicians. It was just an absolute spine-tingling moment and and moments of humour. And I thought the king looked very humble. He looked rather overwhelmed by it. He said... I don't come to be served, I come to serve. So I thought he struck the right note. And I think you'd have to be a right misery guts not to have taken some pleasure in it. How did you feel, Liam? I thought the pomp and circumstance was, of course, spectacular and slightly mad, as I said. I think it made a lot of people happy. It certainly made yeah. my mum happy. She she slept on the pavement back in 1953 yeah. with many of her brothers and sisters, mostly now sadly passed on. And for her, it was a very nostalgic day. I talked to her about it at great length. I was also interested in the kind of soap opera of Harry turning up from the plane, (laughs) standing in the third row, trying to get a view through Princess Anne's feather, (laughs) and then buggering off back to Heathrow, still wearing his medals, Mm. before they even took the official photos. I know, Princess Anne was wearing what I've learned to call a bicorn. So there's a tricorn, isn't there? And there's a bicorn, and, and she looked... Absolutely magnificent. And the red plume, you might almost think she'd been placed there deliberately to obscure a view of the ginger traitor. So there was all that going on, wasn't there? And I actually found out a bit of a scoop, actually, from somebody in royal circles I've been speaking to that Camilla, who I thought looked slightly tentative and a bit uncomfortable, as well she might. It's not very easy being crowned. But apparently she'd done her back in the week before very badly. So she was probably medicated up just to try and get through it. So I did think two people in their 70s, whatever you think about their status, two people in their 70s having to go through what was quite an astonishing ordeal in some ways. Before we move on to the examining the entrails of these local elections, I did just want to pay tribute to you, co-pilot, because you did write The Telegraph's main piece on the coronation at breakneck speed. Newspaper journalists now, you can't file at six or seven o'clock in the evening after a few sharpeners in the local pub. This is online publishing. There are deadlines throughout the day. I thought you did extremely well. And it was only you from the coverage I saw that made the wonderful connection between sword bearer Penny Mordant <laughs> yes. and the fact that she was once a knife thrower's assistant. <laughs> She was a conjurer's assistant. Now, I've been rather taken to task by various readers and listeners who find Penny Mordant a bit too Lib Demi for their taste. But I did say, co-pilot, didn't I, during the leadership election, that this was a figure in every sense behind which the populace would rally. And she has achieved global prominence, hasn't she, in her absolutely astonishing outfit which someone compared to a Croatian air hostess's uniform. And great that Liz Truss tried to marginalise her by making a leader of the house, which is basically kind of chief clerk of parliament. And then she turns out to sort of get a global following. I mean, we've gone from... 
Pippa Middleton's backside to Penny Mordaunt's arms. Penny said, I, I have been exchanging <laughs> texts with her and she said she did do serious press-ups to keep holding that sword aloft for the best part of two hours. Completely mad. We should say, Liam, actually, Penny has been a Royal Naval Reservist and has an sure. honorary commander's title now, but she, after that ceremony where she attracted lots of praise, very typically, I think, of service people, was quick to salute the extraordinary airmen, sailors, soldiers who did us proud on that day. And when you think about the cuts to the armed forces, Liam, which I'm disgusted by really, but they still come out, don't they? Not the best paid people, not going on strike, playing the drums while riding a 16 hands horse in the rain. I mean, take that for multitasking. So yeah, I thought it was a joyous day. And I think let's just finish by saying that we get told a lot, don't we, that this is a terrible country, institutionally this, dreadful. But what we saw, I think, was a vision of unforced harmony. And there was the most beautiful photograph of the scholars of Westminster School who greeted the king with the vivat, that amazing, raw, stirring moment. And I saw a picture of the Westminster scholars afterwards absolutely every type of ethnicity on earth. And there they were greeting King Charles III, their king. And we did see, I mean, a tiny discordant note, but the Bridgerton actress who on ITV really sounded a dreadful discordant note describing the Buckingham Palace balcony as terribly white when the king had absolutely bent over backwards to have the most diverse and welcoming coronation of all time. So three cheers. God save the king. So local elections. <laughs> I've got my purse. Where did it all go so wrong for you, Alison? <laughs> the mystic Meg, vile malicious. <laughs> what happened? I didn't do that badly. You did spectacularly. I you thought. were within 250 seats of the overall <laughs> results. I tell you what, you're a much better forecaster than the Bank of England and some of these other city institutions that have been saying the British economy was going to tank. Certainly are. I think listeners are probably gathered now. We're both fairly competitive, aren't we? And <laughs> we were having a nail-biting finish when you were kind of WhatsApping me throughout Friday night with glee as it became clear that your prediction <laughs> was going to edge out mine. Edge out! Crikey! Edge out! <laughs> Clear water, darling. Clear water. Clear water. Well, not clear blue water, was it? Clear, very red water. But I think what was interesting and something I have been saying for some time is that what we're seeing, I think, is not overwhelming enthusiasm for the other parties, despite Keir Starmer claiming that they were now on course to a majority at a general election. I mean, you can dive down into those figures. I think what we are seeing very much a pattern of disappointed, disillusioned conservatives staying at home. I think there's a mood of revenge amongst some of my readers and our listeners. They are very, very unhappy with the Conservative government. And the Conservatives did lose almost 1,060 seats, as you say, relinquishing control of 48 councils with Labour gaining 22, Liberal Democrats, of course, taking control of 12 authorities, including Windsor and Maidenhead, and Labour taking Tory strongholds like Medway. Now, you'll have noticed, Liam, that the Lib Dems took 
Surrey Heath from the Tories. That's Michael Gove's constituency. I think we could easily see a situation in the 2024 general election, a sort of Michael Portillo situation where actual cabinet ministers are losing their seats at the general election. But as you mentioned, Starmer was wrong, wasn't he? It's, it's not true they're on course for a majority. They needed to be in double digits, didn't they, lead? I think they had 9.7 points, something like that. Yeah, I think there was lots of exaggeration in the aftermath of the event. Labour didn't score highly enough to translate that into a majority in a general election. The Lib Dems, who talked about surging gains, their share of the vote was up merely 1% from 19 to 20%. Yep, that's what the scores on the doors actually show. And I do think it's all to play for. You were completely right. And I don't mean to tease you. Well, not too often. You were completely right about the stay-at-home Tories. That's certainly what I've been picking up too. Interestingly, Alison, you and I talked a lot last week about low turnout. There hasn't actually been an official turnout figure released yet. And I've been looking for it high and low, Mm. as have you. And I wonder why that is. It may be that whoever releases these things doesn't want to draw attention to the fact that turnout is particularly low in England, linked to potentially the use of voter ID. We discussed that last week. Linked to this phenomenon that you put your finger on weeks and weeks ago of stay-at-home Tories. It may be that they're waiting for the local elections in Northern Ireland, which are, of course, on May the 18th, where turnout is traditionally much, much higher because voters are generally so much more politically engaged than across England. So turnout in Northern Ireland is high. And then if they release a joint turnout figure, it will be higher because it will be pushed up by Northern Ireland. That's surmise. I don't know why there hasn't been an official turnout figure, but I suspect it won't be much more than 30-odd percent. There's a long way to go before the general election. I do think it's absolutely still an open contest. There is almost no talk on the backbenches of Sunak being usurped, even though he got a lower number than Theresa May, though he wasn't, of course, presiding over a Brexit psychodrama like the former prime minister, but one was. So I do think Sunak's done enough to lead the Tories into the next general election. And if the economy comes back in a serious way to be discussed, then he's in it with a decent shout of actually winning it. Because yes, as we've discussed, there is this kind of anti-Tory coalition that the Tories are petrified of. But if you turn around the idea of an anti-Tory coalition, Lib Dems, Green, Labour voting tactically to get rid of the Tories, you can also present it as a coalition of chaos. Mm-hmm. The idea that if you do let Keir Starmer in, he's going to have to rule in conjunction with the SNP, for instance. So I do think there is a lot to play for here and Sunak can be quietly pleased at how he's brought the party on since it was absolutely at rock bottom in the opinion polls under Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng. But I think, Liam, if Sunak was making a commanding sort of stance on policy at the moment and just kind of whipping up enthusiasm, this policy this week about let's stop this sort of 8am scramble for GP appointments. They've obviously woken up to the fact all those sort of Quentins and whatever in their ivory towers within number 10 have obviously woken up to the fact that people are incredibly upset they can't see a doctor. Why can't they just go private? (laughs) 
I can't they just go private exactly so now it's oh everyone can go and see a pharmacist with their brain tumor <laughs> it's not quite as bad as that but it's reminding me of the latter years of new labor do you remember when tony blair and memo said he wanted some eye-catching measures that he could personally take credit for and i just think it's really moving the deck chairs around on the deck of the titanic i don't share your view that sunak can turn it around and i think the main problem which was identified by Philip Johnson, our great veteran commentator in The Telegraph this week, was that Sunak is biplicating one set of voters in the Tory shires. He risks alienating voters in the Red Wall. Now, Boris managed to hold together both groups, a pretty unlikely coalition. And he did that due to Brexit, but also sheer force of personality. And I think Sunak is too managerial, too dull, really, to speak to those groups. I did a little skit this week about Mr and Mrs Despairing Tory. Where is the constituency of done voting? (laughs) (laughs) Julia and Roger Despairing Tory were based on some of the stories that we've had from listeners who said that they always vote. They usually vote Tory But this time they went down to the polling station and spoiled their ballot papers. And one listener said the word off may have featured (laughs) on the ballot paper. Don't get me wrong. I don't think Sunak's doing a great job. I think some of his policies are mad. I think abandoning the housing targets on balance is a really bad idea. I think the highest tax burden in 70 years is a very bad idea. I think raising corporation tax is a very bad idea. I think a lot of his policies are weak and focus group driven rather than acts of leadership. I certainly wouldn't be advising him to do a lot of what he's doing. But all I'm saying is looking at the results and looking at the trajectory of the economy, he may anyway be in with a shout. It doesn't mean I don't despair about the endless people that surround him who seem to be completely out of touch with any kind of reality. But I think looking at what happened in those local elections, it wasn't nearly as good for Starmer as everybody expected, and it wasn't nearly as bad for Sunak. And that's just an objective observation rather than any kind of value judgment. Yes. Well, Keir Starmer, I mean, not exactly Prime Minister material co-pilot. I I was thinking that if Keir Starmer was a material, he'd be drip-dry bri-nylon from 1974, wouldn't he really? Or maybe balsa wood. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the things that the government will have to do is deliver on these five slightly ropey pledges they've made. And one of those, perhaps the most important for many voters is the stop the small boats. And yesterday, we had seen the illegal migration bill entering through the House of Lords, having passed in the Commons. And then there was a huge intervention by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, condemning the plans as isolationist, morally unacceptable, politically impractical, to let the poorest countries deal with the crisis alone. Welby saying the bill risks great damage to the UK's interests and reputation at home and abroad. And that follows Welby having previously, I think back in April last year, saying that the Rwanda policy, that's sending asylum seekers who are found to have been illegally arrived to Rwanda, he described it as ungodly. Now, I'm a sort of notional member of the Sea of Elian, but this makes my blood boil. Here is this 
unelected cleric prating in the House of Lords against a policy which is an important piece of the democratically elected government's legislation. The latest poll showed that the Rwanda policy, 40% of people support it, 20% oppose it, and the remainder are undecided. Now, I think it's a very bad policy myself because I don't think it will work, but I understand that Suella Braverman has to come up with some kind of deterrent. We've already seen over 6,000 people crossing the channel this year alone. We've got spending £7 million a day keeping these people in hotels across the United Kingdom. It's absolutely nonsensical. And before you come in, can I just say that (laughs) this class of liberal elite ivory-towered people not understanding that services in our country used by ordinary men, women and children are under enormous pressure, absolutely enormous pressure. People can't see a dentist, they can't see a doctor, there's no housing. And yet when people try to bring in a bill to stop some migration, putting more pressure on it, all the people who've never had to scramble, Welby doesn't have to wait for surgery, does he? And finally, Liam, In 2022, around 16,000 Albanians applied for asylum in the UK, that people who come across the channel. And this is from Albania, a safe country where British tourists go on holiday. And when Welby says we are ungodly, the UK's decision grant rate for Albanian applicants was much higher than most EU countries. So I'm furious with him, absolutely furious. He can back off. It's outrageous to suggest that 40% of the British people are immoral. I agree. I think it's posturing. I think he should keep his nose out of national politics. I think this former oil executive now pontificating about morality and and social mores cuts a preposterous figure. And I say that with some regret. I think this will infuriate the government. But on the other hand, it will also help them to generate a narrative that a lot of the establishment is against what they're trying to do. Mm. Policies which, as you say, resonate with an awful lot of very decent, ordinary people, many of them first and second generation immigrants who've abided by the rules and come here legally and worked very, very hard and made the massive contribution that in most cases they have made. It does give a sense that he is, Justin Welby, woefully out of touch. And Mm. to have done it now as the bill is being introduced to Parliament as an unelected person strikes me as tin-eared at best. I do think that Rishi Sunak is going to have to see this through. I agree with you. I have grave reservations about the policy per se, but I do think that Suella Braveman and Sunak and Downing Street are right, that they need to get some kind of deterrent in place to at least try and put a stop to the massive increase in people risking their lives crossing the channel, paying people traffickers effectively who don't have any inkling of the importance of their safety. The fact that Sunak's made this one of his five pledges isn't because Britain is a racist, intolerant country. It's because, as you say, the pace of illegal immigration has escalated and is now a major fiscal, political and indeed moral problem. We have a really 
well-deserved reputation for tolerance towards immigration in this country. Mm. We are in many ways a nation of immigrants. And yet when the authorities lose any semblance of control, which is where we are, then that natural tolerance of the British people gets sorely tested and much nastier political extremists can make hay with that lack of control and the resulting fear. So I do think it's right the government tries to get hold of this problem. And I think what Justin Welby did was very, very badly judged and indeed anti-democratic in many ways. Suella Raverman pointed out that this was the clear desire of the British people to control immigration. And that was a manifesto pledge, a conservative manifesto pledge in 2019 to take back control of our borders and reduce illegal migration. So it's essentially saying that people who voted for the Conservative government are bad and unkind people. And I simply don't buy that because we've got millions of people who are struggling in our country. And by the way, Liam, the small boats, I think, is a bit of a smokescreen. We've had intimations this week that the net immigration to the UK is going to come in at 675,000. Now, that follows the figure to in 2022, which was 504,000. So that's over a million people added to the population in, what, a year and a half to two years. And all I would say to you is every day I hear from people who cannot access public services. We don't have enough GPs. They haven't trained enough doctors, nurses. There's a cancer care crisis. There's a housing crisis. And yet the government... I mean, you know more about this than I do, Liam, but I think to keep jacking up GDP is allowing, I mean, some of these people must be probably very talented. We do need skilled people, but you have to be thinking about what are you doing to the existing population, which includes all ethnicities, by allowing mass immigration for which the majority of conservative voters didn't vote. I do apologise for interrupting your podcast listening, but I wanted to pop in to tell you about another Telegraph podcast, mine. I'm Christopher Hope, also known as Chopper, and I'm one of the paper's long-standing political reporters and host of a weekly podcast called Chopper's Politics. It's full to the brim with political insight and Westminster gossip, recorded from the heart of the action in the Red Lion pub, just around the corner from Parliament and Downing Street, Each episode I chat to the movers and shakers in British politics. So pull up a pew and join me for your dose of analysis, news and views on Chopper's politics. Find it wherever you're listening to this podcast. Cheerio! And now on to our latest Planet Normal guest. We interview all sorts on Planet Normal, from intelligence bosses to top politicians, from thought leaders to celebrity chefs and industry bosses too. But sometimes our most memorable interviews are with you, ordinary Planet Normal listeners. Who can forget Brian the Fisherman from Peterhead, Holly the Nurse and Claire the GP, NHS workers reporting anonymously from the front line. Or Robert Styler, a Planet Normal listener determined to say goodbye in person to his beloved dying wife Josephine, despite cruel, irrational lockdown rules. 
Today we welcome another Planet Normal listener. Jane Sullivan's a keen oarswoman, a highly qualified rowing coach who recently retired as head of rowing at a co-ed school. Having chalked up decades of experience, Jane has helped UK women's rowing to develop from what was a small offshoot of the men's sport into what is now a highly developed club activity and with full-length championship and Olympic racing and equal participation in other top events, including the high-profile Oxford-Cambridge boat race. Jane wrote to us expressing concern the authorities in her sport of rowing, unlike in swimming and athletics, are continuing to allow male-born trans women to compete in women's events. This, said Jane, destroys genuine competition in women's rowing, which is why she's lobbied the British Rowing Authorities, organising a group letter signed by numerous coaches, ex-GB rowers and rowing officials. She's met Mark Davis, the chair of British Rowing, addressed the British Rowing Board, and also lobbied the head of World Rowing, Jean-Christophe Roland, having, she told us, accosted him on a beach. Jane, welcome to Planet Normal for this, your first ever broadcast interview. Tell us in a nutshell what the sport of rowing means to you and what you think is at stake when male-born rowers line up on the start line, whether it's on the water or on indoor rowing machines, to compete against biologically female rowers in what is, of course, a famously arduous and physically demanding sport. Well, rowing has pretty much been my life. I mean, it it sort of saved me from a lifetime of not being very fit because I I wasn't a natural sportswoman. So it means an awful lot to me. I've rowed since the early 80s and I've seen how women's rowing has grown from virtually nothing in the early 80s to being one of our most successful Olympic and participation sports. Almost 50% of British rowing members are women, so it's hugely successful. As a competitor myself, I first encountered a male rowing in a female event back in 2007. Not in my competition, but I met this person at the scoreboard when we were looking at the scores after the race. And it gradually dawned on me that this male had actually just competed in a female competition. And back in 2007, I'd not really ever come across anything like this before. And my first reaction was disbelief, followed by anger Mm -hmm. that this person had the shamelessness to enter a race and that the organisers had allowed this to happen. So obviously at the time it wasn't something that was very well known and I went away and I thought well I'm not going to bother entering indoor rowing again because what's the point if if they're going to allow men to enter. So I didn't really think much more about it because I was quite busy with coaching and bringing up three children and a full-time job but gradually over the years more and more women mentioned to me that they'd been put up against this male at indoor rowing competitions. Now, we were all masters, you know, we're not elite competitors by any means, but there was this bubbling under of just anger that this was being allowed to happen. And there didn't seem to be anything that we could do about it, because who would listen to us? We were very powerless, really, to do anything So it meant an awful lot to me, you know, especially coaching girls and boys, children. You know, I just felt, well, are they going to grow up coming up against people who aren't who 
they say they are, that sort of thing. So really, that's, in a nutshell, my awakening to this. We were delighted to get your email, which describes so vividly your own wonderful love affair, really, with rowing and how that's infected your own children. I know you've got two sons, one of whom has rowed for Oxford, like co-pilot Halligan, and also rowed at a national level for GB. So mum has inspired this marvellous rowing dynasty. Now you did describe very vividly, I didn't see the point of standing on the podium with a six foot four inches competitor with male pattern baldness and an Adam's apple. I mean, when you put it like that, it's completely ludicrous. We're not, we're not going to be naming any names here today, but we know it's the case that there are rowers in the women's sport who went through male puberty and now do hold women's rowing records. You also said, Jane, that British rowing has facilitated this deception over the years and gradually women in the master's level have, of course, stopped taking part. What is motivating the British rowing authorities to allow what a lot of people would regard as unfair, if not cheating, to thrive in the sport? Well, for a start, world rowing, the world body for rowing, have in a way encouraged this because their policy is to allow males into the female category. So if you're the British governing body, it would be very difficult to go against your world body who are sort of encouraging this. And then the International Olympic Committee, you know, they um, facilitate males in all sorts of sports. You know, at Tokyo, there were three trans people that we know of competing in Tokyo. So when it filters down from world level, it must be quite hard for a governing body in this country to go against that. Yeah. Although some of the sports have gone against their governing bodies. And, you know, I think about British triathlon and volleyball England, who have both gone against their world bodies and said no males in women's sports. So Mm. it can be done. It just needs the will. It really does. Jane, I just wanted to fill in for listeners a little bit about rowing that's very obvious to you and me and indeed to Alison as well, who coxed during her university days. Rowing is a very, very physical sport. I was successful at rowing because I'm six foot four and I've got 7.1 litre lungs as well as being very, very determined. So I was physiologically (laughs) perfect to become (laughs) an, an elite oarsman. And it's not darts or snooker where women can absolutely compete on a level or chess with men it's a sport that's all about physics and I've been absolutely delighted to see what's happened with women's rowing over recent years I was very much supportive as an Oxford oarsman of women rowing the full championship boat race course on the Tideway previously in my day the women's race was at Henley over a much shorter distance so it didn't get nearly as much coverage it didn't inspire nearly as many people and and so on and I'm really proud as a member of OUBC the Oxford University Boat Club that now the women are competing on the Tideway as well Mm -hmm. and of course then there's indoor rowing which 
lots of people don't know about, but it's a worldwide sport. It's a huge sport using standardized rowing machines up against the clock. There are many age categories. It really is a global phenomenon. Why is it, in your experience, having coached to a level that I never have, boys and girls, men and women, why is it that people born as men however they may identify in later life, but having been through male puberty, having those levers, having that lung capacity, why is it that they are always going to beat women? Well, you've said it in a nutshell, you know, it's longer levers. It's testosterone. Testosterone bulks you up as soon as you hit puberty. Longer bones, stronger bones. The male trachea is wider than the female trachea you can't shrink if you reduce your testosterone you can't shrink your bones your muscle mass may decline a tiny bit but it'll never get down to a women's level the benefits of male puberty are just immense and you know I've got in front of me here the two kilometer indoor records the British ones and the fastest woman in Britain has done six minutes 28.8 seconds for two kilometres. The fastest man was 541.8. So you've already got a significant difference between the men and the women. Can I just say as a man, that top, top women's score is a very mediocre man's club score? Yeah, it is. And you know, it, when I used to coach GB juniors, we used to get the sort of minimum required time for, for the girls and the boys. And the, the boys' minimum time, I think, for the first trials used to be something like 6.50. And that was the absolute minimum you had to get to, to get into the first trial. And for the girls, it was about 7.50. Well, you know, you'd have probably about 100 boys who could get the girls' time, you know, who would be way ahead of the girls before the girls' time of 7.50 would even register on the boys' list. So, you know, there there is a difference. It, it, It can't be ironed out by changing your hormones. It's there and it's pre-pubertal as well. You know, even the records for 11, 12-year-olds, the boys beat the girls. So it starts even just before puberty. It's a lifelong thing. Male advantage, it's in your genes. Jane, we've recently seen the World Athletics President Sebastian Coe saying that transgender women will no longer be allowed to compete in female track and field events regardless of their levels of testosterone. Would you like to see British rowing moving towards that position? Yes, I would. I mean, it's the only fair way, really. It seems so obvious to me, sitting here as, as a rower and a coach, that I almost think, well, why, why can't you see that this is so obvious that men have a physiological advantage over women and that we have these sports categories for a reason? We categorise people to allow fairness and in some cases safety, you know, like in rugby, there are no males allowed in female rugby because it's unfair and primarily it's also unsafe in that sport. So I really hope that British rowing and world rowing support their females and do the right thing by them. We have seen signs of movement from British rowing, haven't we? Possibly because of the lobbying efforts of you and others. I know from my own membership that 
British Rowing is now asking members to vote on their preferred policy regarding transgender athletes, leaving the organisation's transgender participation policy up to a domestic member's vote. Surely that's good news from your perspective. Yeah, it is good news. And I was really, really pleased that British Rowing members were going to be given a voice. I personally don't think that policies should be decided on votes. I think it's obvious that fairness and all the other considerations, the science and the legal side, make it obvious that males shouldn't be in women's sport. But I'm really pleased that British Rowing have given members a chance to have a say. So that is good news. Finally, the Cambridge Women's Squad entered a male with a female name into the Blondie crew. That's their second leading boat. And that was the first year that women rowers were allowed to race the Tideway course, as described by Liam. Are you thinking that women are being denied their places in history and in the record books? And do you detect any sense from those competitors that what they are doing is denying women opportunity and victory. I don't really have any dealings with males who've been in women's sports, so I couldn't really speak as to whether they feel a sense of shame at all. But I feel very strongly that the women who have been kicked out of boats because males have got those places have been denied a place in history. It's not just that. When you're in the Blondie or, or the top boats, you're part of an exclusive club. Yes. You're allowed to get your Blondie blazer, you're allowed your Goldie blazer or whatever crew you're in. You know, it gives you access to this club of, of blues and half blues and that stays with you for life. And for that woman, I don't know who she is, who missed out in 2015 when the race was first held on the Tideway. That woman will never have her place in history. She won't be part of that club. And I think it's a great shame. And I don't know who she is, but I feel for her. So do I. Thanks so much, Jane. Thanks so much for writing to us. And thanks a lot for appearing on Planet Normal. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. Well, I must say, Alison, I thought that was a very lucid interview mm. from Jane, who's obviously a very highly experienced person in the world of rowing. It took me back to when we interviewed Sharon Davis. Do you remember in early 2021? Yes. We were castigated by many of our fellow journalists for doing that, bringing her into Planet Normal, allowing her to talk about the need to exclude male-born competitors from elite women's swimming. And now I must say... I do think the debate is going in Sharon Davis's direction. Mm. I do think she's now seen as an extremely brave, courageous person talking for the mainstream rather than some kind of outlier activist. And I think the argument Jane's been making in the world of rowing will also be seen as transformational. Yes, I agree. And I think the tide has turned. If you remember, Liam, one of the things that had motivated Sharon to stick her head above the parapet was that as a brilliant Olympian, she was denied gold medals because at that point in history, East German and Soviet women were being given male hormones. <laughs> so it's a not dissimilar situation from what we're finding now. But back in the day, the young Sharon Davis, who had to compete against women bulked up by steroids and male hormones, 
tragically, as Sharon admitted, those many of those women now dead because of their bodies being experimented on. But Sharon could never, what woman or indeed man could have foreseen that in the future, women would be required to compete against people who'd gone through male puberty. So it is quite surreal. And I have huge admiration for Sharon and for Jane Sullivan, who has now left her rowing job and is dedicated to campaigning to outlaw this clearly grotesque unfairness. And I think one of the main points Jane makes is that as a 15-year-old, she wasn't a sporty girl. She got introduced to rowing. She absolutely loved it. It was the making of her. And she went on to coach many other young women and to be the mother of two fantastic oarsman sons. And you do wonder how many 15-year-old Jane Sullivans now would even bother going into rowing if they know that however good they get, they will never be as good as the trans women who can steal their place in a boat. Now on to our listener emails, the messages you send to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love reading them. And as you've just heard in our interview with Jane Sullivan, quite often a listener email will lead to an interview and campaigning to make real change in matters that you all care about. I had a lot this week, Liam, in response to my piece on the coronation. Catherine says, when Charles emerged from the carriage in his ermine robes, I thought, this is so odd. I don't feel anything. Then the music came in and all of a sudden I was sobbing. It was so emotional. Charles disrobing to be anointed was a truly powerful moment and I'm not even remotely religious. It was magical and I'm so glad to have borne witness to today's events. Melanie takes a slightly different view. My opinion has begun to change over this coronation festival. I'm less proud that my country is good at putting on a display than worried that when it comes to important things like basic freedoms, law and order and national security, we fail miserably. I'm in favour of a monarchy, but deeply worried about the views of the current incumbent and gaining a kind of sympathy for the placard waivers. They should not have been arrested for what is a pre-crime. We are entering a dangerous phase. Actually, who am I kidding? We've been there for quite a while. When police are suddenly given powers at the stroke of a pen, these people were not gluing themselves to anything and were peaceful. Charles needs to keep his bonkers views to himself when it involves shaping our lives to suit his terror carter agenda. Sounds like terror carter. Oh, very good, Jane. And finally, Dave says, I'm an Australian with no real skin in this game. You Brits do pomp and pageantry like nobody else on the planet. Well done. Fantastic by all involved, particularly the military. Long live the king. Okay, this is from Sarah, not her real name. And I've shortened it slightly for time reasons. Dear Alison and Liam, Sadly, my father recently passed away. He was a top executive, and then she names a well-known high street bank, and he retired in the mid-1980s. My father often said he could see the bank's decline before his retirement. The reason for writing is that my father left a document for the family to read after his death. It's brilliantly written and is not only complimentary about the pioneers of the bank following a merger in the 1970s, but highlights the consequences of poor management, mistakes and cover-ups leading to its downfall. 
My father points out that when he joined, it was a long apprenticeship and that the bank produced staff well-versed in the bank's ethics, complete honesty, high standards, and if a mistake was made, staff immediately owned up and made the appropriate restitution. He felt this type of management was no longer reflected in all aspects of our society, from the lawmakers to large corporations, hence the mess we are and continue to be in today. My father felt most people making decisions actually have the inability to think logically. I have long been, he wrote, of the view that most decisions in life, be they in the fields of business, politics, religion, education, or even those made on a purely personal level, are taken not on logical grounds, but on emotional ones, often motivated by reasons of bias, prejudice, envy, preconceived ideas, refusal to face the facts, or even, on occasion, sheer ignorance. My father, writes Sarah, wanted the document to be destroyed after the family had read it. I truly don't want to go against his wishes, but I felt I had to air a small part of his appraisal as it explains the mess we are in today. Well, Sarah, not your real name, please forgive my edits and shortening of your father's message to you and his family. I think you've done exactly the right thing by sharing these words, which I'm sure will resonate with many of our listeners. Fantastic email, Sarah. On the subject of the local elections, Daphne says, I spoiled my ballot paper for the first time in a lifetime of voting conservative. I could find nothing about the candidate. Even the local MP's office knew nothing of her. I will not vote for someone who is so arrogant that she refuses to furnish voters with details of her achievements and principles, if any, Daphne. If the party treats core voters with similar contempt, they will be annihilated next year. And here's one, Liam, really brilliant summation. I think this is from someone known as A.B. Badger. After some 13 years under Tory rule, I'm paying more tax than at any stage in my adult life. I'm less able to get any kind of service from local government or local services than at any time in living memory. I'm paying more for basic essentials and utilities than I have ever done. I have less disposable income, less ability to save and worsening life expectancy than ever before. A group to which I belong, ex-forces, lie on the streets in their thousands in the pouring rain, whilst Albanian drug criminals ride into bed and breakfast accommodation straight from the beaches. I will do anything in my admittedly limited power to get this utter shower of a government out as quickly as possible. This is from Richard. Dear co-pilots, I very much enjoyed the recent episode on inflation with the economist Stephen King and have been inspired to write this verse for you. I'm calling it Transitory. I hope Miss Pearson, Ms. Pearson, will find my homework acceptable. So in the long line of planet normal bards, this is from Richard. <laughs> Transitory. The Corolian age has dawned, but not without some trouble. The cost of living shooting up with prices almost double. Not many can afford a great big rural celebration. A wet and quiet holiday has settled on the nation. But just how did this happen, all this economic fuss? You'll hear one simple answer. It was blown up by Liz Truss. She made mistakes, but plainly it can't possibly be true. The mini budget put rates up across the whole EU. The truth's a bit more normal. There's a planet where you'll hear that printing money post-Covid was not a panacea. Our Liam warned of price rises, but Bailey said don't worry. As long as we don't print too much, you'll find it's transitory. <laughs> Alas, we're two years down the road still grappling with inflation. It's all the fault of Putin, is the bank's weak explanation. We must accept we'll all be even poorer come tomorrow. An economic forecast that's a bitter 
Hugh Pill to swallow. Oh. So how do we move on from this and solve the grim dilemma? I wouldn't know the answer. Just being another Velma who's new to talk of guilts and bonds and monetary easing, my macroeconomic skills have a rather low ceiling. One thing I think I know, some common sense for all to see, in straitened times you can't always just reach for more QE. The bank's a cat that's stranded up the magic money tree. At least the post of governor is, I think, transitory. Well done. (laughs) Absolutely brilliant, Richard. And picking up on many of co-pilot Halligan's favourite bank bashing themes there. That's why I read it out. (laughs) (laughs) He does like people who echo his dearest sentiments. By the way, I did see the new Tory party chairman, Greg Hans, making an ambitious attempt on the Nick Ferrari show to blame the conservative local election defeat on Vladimir Putin. (laughs) Nick Ferrari dismissed that quite briskly. We've got another poem. It's a flourishing, a renaissance verse this week. Marilyn, a planet normal stalwart, sends us her 10-year-old granddaughter Tessa's coronation poem. Move over, Bob, says Marilyn. That's getting a bit of a competition here, Liam. So Tessa writes, on Saturday, we celebrated our new queen and king. People lined the streets to cheer and a choir was there to sing. Street parties happened all over the towns and everyone spoke of the heavy crowns. Everyone was happy for an extra day's break, which gave people time to eat more coronation cake, says Tessa. And Marilyn adds... Tessa's anti-monarchy mother might have added, a king is such a waste of time, a president instead would be sublime. Absolutely fantastic. Well done, Tessa. Ten years old. That's absolutely brilliant. A couple more quick ones, Alison, from John on the coronation. My father was a bandsman on horseback in the coronation of George VI in 1937. I often wondered how he played his instrument and steered his steed. I now realise his horse was steering itself. I still have his 16 Fife Lancers helmet. I got it out and polished it for the first time in 70 years. And Mike says, and this really struck me as well, Liam, the king taking the salute from the armed forces in the back garden of Buckingham Palace was incredibly moving. And it reminded me of the enormity of the oath that I had sworn to the late queen when I joined the RAF back in 1982. Whilst the whole day was very moving, the moment that the armed forces raised three cheers for the king finally got to me and brought a huge lump to my throat and a tear to my eye. It was a wonderful moment. And Joey, finally... It's truly days like today that remind me that to be born British is to have won the lottery of life. Never forget that, however bad things may appear. And on that note, that is it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views. Email of the week, it's my turn. Controversially, I'm going to park the poets for a week, keep scribbling, (gasps) and I'm going to give email of the week to RAFman Mike. I thought that was a wonderful email from you mike so send us your home address to planet normal at telegraph.co.uk and put in the subject heading of the email mug winner and we will send you your mug i'm going to take an executive decision in the coronation week and certainly mike can have his mug we're going to have a mug also special occasion which will be running past louise wells a mug to richard fantastic poem transitory And to 10-year-old Tessa, you deserve it, darling. Wonderful rhyming poem, age 10. So there we are, Halligan. Co-pilot speaks up. 
Quite right too, Alison. And as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampick, Cass Ho and Louisa Wells. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.